What do you think the acronym WIIFM might stand for, right? Your, your first thought may be a radio station, right? It kind of stands like a radio station, WIIFM. Think about it for a second. Let me give you a little hint. For decades, presenters, those who teach those to speak, have trained up speakers to get inside the minds of their audience to know their WIIFM. In fact, it's suggested that speakers are going to be so much more successful if you understand one's WIIFM, all right? Now, maybe you're thinking, can you, can you put it together, what it might be? What's the direct benefit for the person who's receiving the information, and how much, more, how much better they receive that if they know the WIIFM? What it stands for is, what's in this for me? What's in this for me? And sadly, as believers in our flesh, we can have that attitude as well. In fact, many times when they're training speakers, they say, okay, how does this impact somebody's financial well-being or their happiness or their health you know, or their free time or their success in this area or this hobby or can it make their life safer or happier? But in our flesh, even oftentimes it's subconscious we ask ourselves the question, what's in this for me? I don't get it. What's relevant to me about this? Well, as Christians, that's not the question we should be asking ourselves. Our question we should be asking ourselves is, what's in this for God's glory? What is in this activity or in this thing that I'm doing, what's in this for God's glory? If we're going to be different in this world, if we're going to live like Jesus in this world, then we need to learn from the teacher. And in John chapter 13, where we return again today, and if one of the deacons could get the house lights there so people can see their Bibles, um, in John 13, Jesus shows a different way of living, a different way, a new way to be human, a new way to live life. And we talked about this chapter at the beginning of it last week, how Jesus, as we just sang so beautifully, the word, God who became flesh, took on the flesh of humanity dwelled among us, lived among us, and we saw last week that creator God, Jesus Christ, wrapped a towel around himself, went around to each and every disciple, and washed their feet. Their muddy, dirty, nasty feet. And Jesus, in today's passage, he explains his actions, and he tells us, his followers, to follow in his footsteps, to do what he did in his example. So we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. Just follow along as I read that for us. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. For I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the one another's feet. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that guides us and directs us. We know left to ourselves 
that our attitude of what's in this for me would permeate everything that we do because it's so unnatural for us to live for your glory and not for our own glory. And God, we admit that our motivations are complex and sometimes we even question the things that we hope to be doing for your glory. Are they done for our own personal notoriety or or well-being? And God, I pray you'll teach us through the power of the Spirit and through your word to be able to just follow your example and serve humbly. And God, I pray, especially tonight, as people come on this campus who would not normally be here, God, may we serve them with the love of Jesus. Even the cup of water or the cookie or the chili that we give them will be done in your name, in your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the scene here is Jesus in the upper room, He's having Passover meal with his disciples. It's Thursday, and Friday's the crucifixion. So we're right at the edge of the cross. In fact, this this section of Scripture is known as Jesus' farewell discourse because he's beginning to tell them the final instructions. He's spending this intimate time with his 12 to prepare them for what's ahead. And so in this long block, block of teaching, you would think that Jesus would jump right in, but I, I love it. I think it's so perfect that Jesus, rather than launching into teaching, he shows them by example the way that he wants them to live. He teaches them with a visual illustration that we're still discussing today because it was so powerful and so amazing. So as they came into this upper room, this rented, this borrowed upper room, more than likely there's no servant there who would be the one who would wash the feet. This was the custom of the time. This was the way that was done that you would have the lowliest of servants, usually a Gentile, who would wash the disciples' feet or the people's feet. And so there had been a servant here to wash the disciples' feet and Jesus' feet. Of course, there's no servant there. And so what happens? Does the disciples, do they fill that gap and jump in to do it? No, sadly they don't. Jesus begins to wash their feet. And we looked at last week, even the feet of Judas, the one who is in league with Satan himself in this plot to betray Jesus. Jesus kneels down and washes his feet as well. So let me briefly recap some of the things we looked at in this passage last week as a reminder as Jesus goes in to explain his actions. Love motivated Jesus to wash his disciples' feet. Sometimes we can look at this just as an example. Here's Jesus showing us how to live. But we need to remember, love motivated it. The chapter started off with Jesus saying that his hour had come to depart from the world. And having loved his own who were in the world, his disciples, he loved them to the end. So he's loving them through and through to the end. And in this passage, we're going to see in the next couple weeks, bookended by another strong statement of love, from Jesus, verse 35, by this all people will know you're my disciples. You're gonna know you're my disciples, why? Because of the things you teach? No, he says, by your love for one another, they're gonna know there's something different about you. So foot washing is an expression of love more than just simply a good example, a humble example for us to follow. And then secondly, Jesus was teaching a deeper truth, a spiritual, about a spiritual cleansing that was to happen. Verse 10, he said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, but is completely clean. And he says, all of you are clean except for one, all right? So he says, all of you in this room with me, you're all clean except for the one, Judas. So what he's saying is, all of the disciples, 
except for Judas, has placed their faith in Jesus. They have trusted Jesus, and he's giving this powerful illustration of the gospel, this cleansing, and his foot washing is a beautiful picture of what he is about to do in his atoning work on the cross for us. And I can imagine for the disciples after the crucifixion and resurrection and as they jump off into ministry, that they had some aha moments of this, of this time where Jesus kneeled down and kind of got it, pieced it together after the crucifixion, exactly what Jesus was demonstrating there. And then the third thing was Jesus' followers are clean, but Jesus pointed out that you're still in need of a spiritual cleansing. So we're clean, but we're still in need of this continual cleansing. There in verse 10, he pointed out, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. And so we talked about that last week, how that as we live in this world, the world's dirt will get on our feet and it will hinder our fellowship with God. And so there's this idea of we need to be confessing our sins. We need to be not converted, not saved again and again and again. Uh, if you're truly in Christ, if you're truly a believer, important to know because some of you come from backgrounds where, you know, you fail, you mess up, you sin, you're going to go to hell unless you turn back to Jesus and repent. And that's not what Scripture teaches us. And Jesus makes this clear in this passage that it's not we need to be converted again, but we need this cleansing, this confession of sins so we can restore fellowship with God, so we can live for his glory and his honor and fulfill his will. And so today, now, we're going to look at the example that Jesus teaches us through his loving, self-sacrificial service to the others. So we're going to pick up in verse 12 his example that he sets for us. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? What does Jesus ask this? Think about that for a second, because this, I mean, as, as dense at times as the disciples can be, this doesn't seem like a super deep uh, teaching moment, right? I mean, why did he ask them, do they need to know more? Apparently, they do need to know more. They need to understand what Jesus is doing, because naturally, like I said, in and above ourselves, we're not going to get this, all right? Here we are. How many of you, raise your hand if you've been a believer since you were a child. Raise your hand if you've been a believer since you were a child, all right? All right, we still don't get this, right? We, we, we have moments where we do better than others, but we still don't get it because it's so counterintuitive. It's so anti everything that we naturally think. It's what's in it for me, right? And Jesus is saying, it's not about us, it's about serving. So the first thing Jesus does, he shows his authority. Look at verse 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're a right, for so I, I am. So he says, Look, you call me rabbi, that's teacher. It's a respectful way of talking to and about your religious instructor. And then he says, Lord, and Lord in this case is referring to his, uh, his divinity. So he establishes his authority as the foundation for the argument he's about to make. So he's saying, this is who I am. Now, who are you? Here's who I am. Think about it for a second. Let's ponder this. Verse 14, if I then your teacher and Lord, you, you affirm this, you call me this, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You ought also to wash one another's feet. You know, kids are notorious for totally illogical actions, and then they try to build that up or defend that through an additional 
illogical argument, right? So, so think about your kid for a second. Think about those who have children, grandchildren. Think about a time where they did something really, really stupid, and then they tried to tell you why it really made sense for them to do what they did, right? I remember once my brother had a handheld a, a pistol BB gun, and I'm standing there, my younger brother, four years younger, and he shot me right in the foot. And it hurt bad, and I was like 13, he was like nine, eight or nine, and as I go crying to my parents at, at this time, what were you thinking, Paul? And he said, I was checking to see if there was bullets in it, right? <laughs> Great argument, right? Great argument for, for his actions. I remember another time in class, a kid throws a paper airplane across the room as the teacher returns back in. She's like, why did you do that? And he was like, I didn't think it would fly, right? And, and it's like, why try it? If, you know, and we do this all the time. Even adults, we do this. Anybody remember the name Sammy Sosa? You remember that guy who played, I think, for the Cubs, one of the greatest home run hitters of all times? Well, during one baseball game, he hit the ball and his bat fell apart, and inside there was cork. It was corked. All right, so for those of you who don't know anything about baseball, that would give your bat a little more pop and give you just a little more pop on your bat to make you a better hitter. His excuse, I thought it was my practice bat, all right? <laughs> really? You practice with a cork bat, right? That really makes a lot of sense, right? So, so we come up with these crazy arguments. So get the point here. Jesus' actions, we, we just got to wrap our minds around this. It's so illogical. It, it's so outside the box for the disciples to see the master, the rabbi, the Lord, kneeling down, washing their feet, that he has to make an argument for it. Of course, his argument is logical. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, here it is, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus is saying, if he is the exalted teacher, he's the master, he's the Lord, he's their sender, if he can assume the role of a despised Gentile servant wrapped in a towel for the good of others, we have no right or excuse to refuse to do the same. So Jesus says, here's who I am, and here's what I've done to you, and here's what you're to do, and if I can do this, and I'm going to send you out on mission to represent me, to go, as Buzz said, and make disciples, baptizing them in my name, Jesus says, if I'm going to do that, here's what I need you to understand. This is what leadership looks like in my church. This is what leadership looks like for the kingdom of God. This is what leadership looks like for those who bear my name and represent me. So regardless of the role or task, Agape love, love just, just for the good of others, for God's glory, must be our motivation. That must be our motivation. Now, let's think about this for a second. Satan is great, and we're going to be talking about this the next few weeks too. He's great at lies. He's great at deception. He's great at tricking people. And the sad thing is that there's religious people, even people who name the name of Christ, all over the world with very little or no understanding of the gospel of grace. And so they see their works of mercy, their acts of compassion, as an, as an attempt to balance the ledger sheet, so to speak, with God. Like, if I can do enough good things here, then it's going to offset my bad things. So I need to serve people. I need to be humble. I need to help people out in their lives. 
And so their motivation stems from being a better, to be a better person, and they hope to possibly, I want to remain in God's favor. And so man-made religion says, look inside yourself, and there you'll find the strength in life to serve other people and to be humble. That's what world's religion, that's what the devil wants you to think. If I just look inside myself. But true religion looks to Jesus for their example, and not just for their example, get that, not just for your example, but for your strength, strength to fulfill the, what he's called you to fulfill. So as long as you're looking at yourself, you're never going to live in a way that's truly as a servant, a humble servant for the, God's glory. You're going to continually to do it for your good and your glory or to balance the ledger, ledger sheet for God. And so if you're looking inside, it's the wrong direction. You must keep your eyes on Jesus. So he says in verse 15, I've given you this example that you should do just as I have done to you. So he says, do this. All right, some of the K-groups discussed this last week. Should we wash feet? Is this, is this a once, you know, kind of thing? Or is Jesus saying, hey, this is something you should keep? Is, should it be a regular thing that we do in the church? And it does continue to be a ceremonial thing in many, many churches. They literally obey Jesus' command, and many have even raised it to the level of a sacrament. Others, like Grace Church, we believe the language here points to uh, the, something that's more important, which is an attitude and an actions of, of loving and sharing and serving in a way that God desires us to, to do that. Why do we believe that? Because a couple reasons. Nowhere else in the New Testament will you find anywhere where, and, and other biblical evidence where it's being requested or demanded of a church to do this ordinance or to do this as a sacrament. You won't find that anywhere else. And it's un, unwise to create a ritual that appears only one time really in Scripture, all right? If we're going to create a, a, a ritual and it only really appears once, there's a time in Tim, Timothy where it appears, but it doesn't seem to be like Paul's demanding or asking the church to do that. He just notes that one of the widows does that in the church. And, he, and here's the biggest picture, I think. The biggest issue is when we just have a as our culture likes to call virtual, virtue signaling, when we just have something that we can do to prove our humility or to prove that you know, we truly care about others, it's so easy just to go through the motions of that and appear humble when in reality our heart is nowhere near God. So real service for genuine needs is far more important than some sanctitized or sanctimonious ritual that we can do. All right. So with that being said, I found a quote by a guy named Francis Schaeffer, who died many years ago, incredible thinker, brilliant apologist. He wrote this. He said, some churches have made foot washing into a third sacrament. Members wash each other's feet during the worship service. While most of us think that it is a mistake to make this a sacrament, let us admit that it is 10,000 times better to wash each other's feet in a literal way than to never, never to wash anybody's feet in any way. Wow. That's a convicting statement, right? It's a convicting statement because we can say, oh, you know, it's not required, and just go about our business with no really attitude of humility and service toward one another. And so think about your life for a second, all right? Just kind of focus in on your activity. How willing are you to get involved in the messiness of other people's lives 
for the kingdom of God. All right? It's so easy to run the other way when people's lives get messy or people's lives, when you dig in and realize they are messy, right? There's no easy solution that you can just give a verse or two and go on your merry way and this will take care of itself. That rarely happens. It's follow through. It's consistency. It's constantly praying for that person and being involved in their life is where life change can happen by giving them Jesus again and again, pointing to them to Jesus. And a lot of people do not want to get into the mess of people who are hurting and who people who are suffering. It's, it looks like forgiveness. It looks like I have a right to hold this against you, but I'm going to choose to forgive you because I know that's what Jesus has commanded me to do. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ. Here's the example. Jesus forgave you. The master, the Lord, the sender, the great Jesus, he forgave you when you were so much worse off than anybody that you could serve. You were destined for hell and destruction. He came to your rescue. You didn't deserve it. Now he calls us to love and forgive just as Christ forgave you. It's patience with people. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to be patient because it's W-I-I-F-M, right? What's in it for me, all right? This person, they don't make me feel good, all right? They don't, I don't really care to be around them, all right? So I'm choosing to avoid them. Yet Jesus says you have to engage those people, be patient with those people, love those people. In a church this size, there, there's just people all over the spectrum of spiritual maturity. You have people who are newer to, to, to faith, newer to Jesus. You have people who have been walking with Jesus for years. You have people who have been walking with Jesus and then they kind of fell backwards or fell into sin or making bad choices. But it's not our job just to, to criticize and condemn. It's our job to go alongside them. Titus talks about how the older women should go to the younger women and help train them up and teach them how to be a godly wife and a godly mother. Younger women need that, don't they? And we, we need guys who will step into fight clubs with other guys and mentor and help these guys see, hey, when I was your age, here's the mistakes I made. Here's how I can help you avoid those because you're going to be sorely, sorely disappointed later that you engaged in those things. And so you come alongside and you enter in the mess. And you just, we can just practice good listening, good conversations with people, good presence in our homes with our spouses, giving them our attention, giving them our focus. Uh, men, taking the spiritual leadership in your house. And that could include like doing some laundry or bathing the kids or helping out around the house at times. That could be what it would look like for you to be a servant, to be humble. Women, you could serve your husband in a 1 Corinthians 7-5 sort of way and just love your husband and care for him. Uh, you can jump into our kids' ministry and serve in a way that maybe is not natural to, for you to serve. There's so many opportunities within the body of Christ to follow Jesus' example and show how we can just live humbly like Jesus modeled for us and to bend a knee and get down and serve other people. And what I love about this is that Jesus tells us in verse 17, he says that this is the most blessed possible way that you can live. All right, really, really grab hold of that. And Buzz alluded to this. It's the most blessed possible way that you can live. Verse 17, if you know these things, he didn't end there, you're blessed, right? What's he say? If you know these things and you what? You do these things, you'll be blessed. Blessed are you if you do them. So when we understand that serving is how that we receive blessing, and blessing here means, it means gladness, happiness, it means joy, 
It, it means, as Jesus is quoted in Acts 20:35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I know this is hard to believe at Christmas time with our kids, right? To train them to say, hey, it's more blessed to give and receive. That's something we have to help them understand. We have to model for them and teach them because it's W-I-I-F-M naturally built into us. What's in this for me? Giving away stuff sure doesn't feel very natural, right? It doesn't feel very good to me. And we have to train them in that example. And Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So Jesus' example shows the disciples how they can live blessed in this world, how they can be happy and fulfilled in this world. Now remember, all right, lest you fall into a pattern of thinking health, wealth, and prosperity here, all the disciples, all 11 of these guys are going to give their life for the kingdom. Ten, at least 10 of them, 10 of them are going to be martyred, and John's going to be exiled on the island of Patmos for their commitment to Jesus Christ. But he says, your life can be full of joy and gladness when you focus upon serving for the glory of God in mutual service, submission, forgiveness, patience. So W-I-I-F-M, is that really where your heart is? Here's what I need you to do. Contemplate this just for a second as we get ready to close. What makes this whole foot washing scene so powerful? Think about that. What makes this so powerful? It's the person of Jesus tied to this humble, lowly act that brings power, right? It's, it's the fact that Jesus, and as you have a high view of Jesus, then you're blown away by what's happening here. If you have a low view of Jesus, a low view of God, then it's like, what's the big deal, you know? Or I can just go my way and believe it, but not do it, not follow the example of Jesus. But when you have a high view of Jesus and the gospel, and when you truly understand that creator God, the word that became, became flesh, as John told us in chapter one, as he set all this up, as he prepared to tell us, here's why you need to believe in Jesus. As he set all this up, he shows us who Jesus is. And now here at the end, we find Jesus wrapping a towel around himself, kneeling down and doing the work of a lowly servant washing the feet of his disciples. And so foot washing is this incredible picture of the gospel. But you know what else is an incredible picture of the gospel? Even more so, maybe thousands of times bigger picture than foot washing is what Jesus would do next. This is preparation for what's to happen. The king, the Messiah, crucified for the sins of the world. Something that Jesus straight out has com communicated and told his disciples again and again, but it's still out of every category. If we think that foot washing by the Messiah is tough to comprehend, the Messiah going and dying on a cross, it's going to blow their mind, okay? They're not going to understand it at first. And so the Lord's Supper that we will take together today is a time that has been instituted. It is that sacrament that we participate in often, to remind us, because we need, listen, we need reminded. We do. We need reminded, because just like foot washing could just fall into a routine, and we do it, you know, and that's what I'm supposed to do, the gospel can be that way too. We've heard it a billion times. Jesus says, when you take this drink, this wine, when you take the bread, once you interact with it, it's going to be a really physical demonstration. You're going to touch it. You're going to put it in your mouth. You're going to taste it. 
And this is to remind you of the death that I'm about to have on the cross. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me, he said. It's a gospel-ordained covenant renewal that we do again and again and again to help us remember the seriousness of the moment. And there's just something special. Like, I know it's easy for us, and especially if you grew up in certain traditions where it was, we, we kind of went so far the opposite direction of Catholicism that we want to make sure that, like, this is just purely symbolic because we sure don't believe it's the actual body and blood of Jesus. But we went so far the other way that maybe we've lost the fact that there is something very significant and very real in this moment. And it's a very tangible way to think about the gospel. And so I hope today that it won't just be another, let's do it and let's get out of here. Let's have a time where we really, if your kids are nearby, that you pray with your kids, you talk to your kids and explain to them what's going on here and take it as a family. I always go back and, and be with my family during this time because it's a significant time where we take the Lord's Supper together. And then our hands application today is very simple. We get low and we serve and we find joy down low when we serve other people. When we get low and we get down like Jesus and follow his example and we do it with a heart that sometimes mixed motives, but we say, for the best I can, God, I'm doing this for your glory. Tonight when I go to fill by night and serve people, God, I'm, I'm doing the best I can for your, your glory. I know the cookie table and the bow table, it's going to be crazy. People are going to be fighting, but God, it's for your glory. Help me to show the heart of a servant in those moments where things get chaotic. Help me as things don't go my way and people are doing things and kids are acting crazy. Help me in those moments, God, it's for your glory. Even if I have to correct that person or correct that child, it's for your glory and I'm gonna show that heart. That's what we need because that doesn't come naturally for any of us. What comes naturally is what's in this for me. God says, do it for my glory, be a servant. Let's pray and then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. Raise your hand if you did not get the communion cup with the bread in it. There's a couple right here. Um, the deacons, keep those up over on the side over here. Kelly Gay, Lolly and Laney. Just keep those hands up. And I'm going to pray and just keep your hands up during the prayer time so the deacons will find you. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can truly pause and remember the greatest sacrifice that you made, Jesus and we see in this picture of your humility, a greater humility of going to the cross and suffering the shame, being despised and rejected so that we can have a relationship with you, God, so we can come boldly to your throne and ask for grace and help in time of need. And God, I pray every person in this room will be asking for help right now because we're all in need. We all fight the flesh every moment of every day to subconsciously or consciously what's in this for me. And God, I pray you'll help us through the power of your Holy Spirit and through just our time together taking the Lord's Supper today will be a time to, to rededicate our hearts to doing all for your glory, whether it's we eat or we drink. Do it all for your glory, God. Help us to be servants to one another, God, for those who need to forgive someone in this room. God, may they not just forgive them in their heart, but maybe even if they need to, to go to that person today and ask for forgiveness. And God, I pray that you will bring unity into our body because we know you said, it's your words, that by our love for one another, they're going to know that we're your disciples. And God, I pray that you'll be honored.
Just ask.